Hi, everybody. I'm Joshua Danziger. And I'm Ethan Canfield. Today is Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. And this is The Young Perspective, where we talk about America's biggest political and social dilemmas from the eyes of two high schoolers. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Young Perspective. Let's go back a little over a year and a half ago to January 6, 2021. On this date, protesters at the Capitol stormed the Capitol building. This became known as the epitome of political violence You know, in modern American political history, the epitome of political violence of people taking up arms against the government to change the political situation in the country. About a week ago, Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, was attacked in his home by David DePop. DePop came into his home, broke in the hammer, and he demanded to see Nancy Pelosi. She wasn't there. She was in Washington, Washington, D.C., but her husband, Paul, was there. And her husband, he called the police, and the police rushed to the scene, and they found the attacker fighting with Nancy Pelosi's husband, uh, trying to attack him and hit him with a hammer. And then the policemen, they broke up the fight. They arrested a pop. They rushed Pelosi's husband to the hospital. He went through surgery for a a fracture in his skull and is now uh, recovered and has left the hospital okay. And a pop will be tried um, and has recently uh, pleaded not guilty. And so this is a prime example of the extremes of American politics attacking our politicians and their homes. And, and it doesn't only stop at Nancy Pelosi. Attacks, threats against politicians around the nation have been, have been on the rise in New York. Multiple people have come and stalked Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They've stalked her office. She's received threats outside her office. In Maine, Senator Susan Collins, the senator of Maine, her, her home windows have been smashed multiple times. In, in Seattle, Representative Premier Jayapal, outside her house, Protesters, protesters have gathered with, with semi-automatic machine guns, semi-automatic rifles, uh, and they, they've got threats and profanities. Um, it, it's, it's been statistically shown as well over the last couple of years, these threats, these attacks against both politicians and you know, political groups um, have been on the rise. And this is happening on both the left and the right. Both the Democrats and Republicans are being attacked verbally and physically with threats and physical violence uh, in their homes, on the streets, in public, and outside of their offices. As our country has become more divided and the extremes are are resorting to attacking the politicians to exploit their gains. So what are politicians doing in response? Well, the government, you know, in theory, the government should provide some protection for politicians because they're in the business of politics. So the, you know, the, the, the government should protect them in theory. However, the government doesn't have all the money in the world. So when a politician requests security detail from the government, requests funding for that, the government often says, wait in line. You know, you're behind 30 or 40 or 150 or hundreds of other people who, who are requesting security detail and requesting that funding. Um, so many, many politicians had to use their own money, um, campaign money, et cetera, to, to, you know, to pay for security. The, the highest amount recorded is Senator Raphael Warnock. He reported uh, spending $900,000 in, in, in 2021 on private security. Ted Cruz spent $600,000 the same year. So every year, these, these, these high-ranking, these 
you know, these relatively well-known political figures are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. But what about the ones who aren't as well-known? Maybe the, the, the politicians who aren't as wealthy, they often have a hard time affording it. And often the families of politicians also, they, they don't get a security because that's an extra, you know, expense to, to, to protect all their kids, not rather than just the one person. So it, it, the really challenge is paying for the protection of one person, just the politicians expensive, but often threats also come from the family, from the, the wife or the husband or the children of the politician. So, you know, the question is how can, how can security be secured for everybody who may be under threat? In addition, these young politicians, they often receive less funding from the government themselves, less security. Uh, and so now not only do they not have, do they have less security from the government, but they also have less funding. They're usually less successful. They're earlier out in their careers. There's just not enough funding and resources to protect all of these politicians uh, in a nation that's becoming more violent and more aggressive. Who's responsible? The narrative continues from other episodes You know, we, we've talked about. It's the far left and the far right. Once again, the extremes of this country are responsible for, for a lot of the challenges, um, especially the safety of our politicians now. So even though far left incidents are rising, you know, the rising of both sides, the, the predominant amount of, of political violence is from the far right. Uh, according to you know, the Global Terrorism Database, FBI statistics and others, it's predominantly on the far right at, at this point in time. In addition, according to the Capitol Police, the officers who are directly working to protect the congressmen and those in the federal government, in the past few years, attacks on congressmen and those in the government have majorly come from those who are mentally ill. These attackers are often not arrested because police deem that what's more beneficial is to give them mental health treatment rather than putting them in a jail. And so a lot of the times these attacks are, are, are not prosecuted and this continues to happen because more mentally ill attackers on those in the extremes continue to push forth and attack more and more politicians every day. So while that might be true in the experience of you know the, whoever whatever Capitol police member was uh, you know was was giving this interview or was was being quoted, the larger trends across the U.S. actually show something different. Um, so that it actually shows that that those participating in far right violence are not mentally ill. These are actually see what seemingly normal people. These are people that are married, people that have children, people that hold jobs, people that attend church, often religious you know, religious, religious individuals. And these are people who belong to a community that share their beliefs and share their, you know, radical conservative beliefs often. Um, so they're, they're kind of in this, in the, in a room of mirrors, if you think about it, where they look in every direction and everybody's, you know, the, everything they're looking at, everything they're hearing is the same as, as, as what they think and what they hear. And they're looking back at themselves. So because they, they're hearing, you know, these radical beliefs from everybody around them, that reinforces their beliefs that, prompts them to go out and, and do violence. So, you know, these were a lot of the people at the Capitol on January 6th. They were married. They had jobs. Um, you know, some of them, some of them were police officers. Some of them were city workers where they, where they lived, yet they still went up and, and took arms, even though they were established and not mentally ill. And the belief that motivates the, the far right is that these white Christian men, they feel like the United States and the traditions and values uh, of the past are being threatened. They feel like their culture and, and, and their Christian values uh, and established norms are being threatened by, by women, by minorities, by the left. And so they are trying to hold on to, to these dying values. And in order to do so, they feel like their only recourse is through violence. 
that they have to use force to stop this radical agenda that they feel like the left is pushing. And the real relevancy of this issue today is that next week, millions of Americans will go to to polling stations around the country, and we're going to have to see how political violence may change the outcome of the election and and, and its potential to to make change. So in the past, um, political violence has has been used against polling booth officials, polling booth employees uh, as, as intimidation tactics to hopefully you know, sway these employees to, to change the results of the elections. In the past, political violence has been used, you know, to intimidate voters to to to, to vote a, a certain way. So it, the, the real challenge is how do you protect our elections so these these people, these established people on either side of the, the aisle will not be able to make a change, um, you know, and, and affect our democratic process. So how do we solve this? How do we bring peace to our society, unite the two extremes and bring sense and order to our nation that feels like is descending into chaos and destruction. And it starts with credibility. First of all, elections, we need to know that that an election is safe. We have to have all members of our our society believe that an election is secure, that that no one is stealing an election. When you have a large portion of Americans believing that the election is stolen, and that completely ruins the election, uh, its credibility, and that just allows chaos and disruption and disorder to occur. And and some of the other things that the country can do to, to prevent political violence you know, our prevention and redirection. We have these national agencies, the FBI, the the NSA, and other agencies, and they have departments that are intended to find people who could commit terrorist attacks, who could commit you know threats and violence against um, against politicians and, and other important people. And their jobs are to stop it. And you know, if if we they can if, if threats continue to rise, maybe it, it needs to be an increase of funding to these departments so they can continue responding um, to to the continued violence. Third is, you know, policing. Police have to prosecute people who make these mistakes. Um, and many people who, who, who use political violence, who make political threats, especially on social media, you know, social media can go viral. There's no accountability for, for making those threats online. And that can be a real challenge for, for officials. How do you police online threats? But how do you police in person? And how do you make sure people are accountable for what they do wrong? And lastly, political compromise and discourse. When our politicians lead by example uh, and bring unity within the government, then you have unity within the public. When the government shows that unity is more important than division and leads by this example and and represents the peace that we want to see in our nation, then our nation will naturally follow suit. This will conclude this week's episode of The Young Perspective. You can find more of us at theyoungperspective.net. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And remember, this was The Young Perspective.